Naked recap UFC Vegas 36 and check this out I made my way over to the east coast went to go see Pat and Paul unfortunately they're not joining me on this recap I think it was a bit of a rough night for both of them maybe not so much Pat but Paul uh, haven't gained contact with him yet sure we will in the very near future and yeah I mean it was a good offering uh, from the UFC from an entertainment standpoint we love these matinee cards pretty easy to ingest fight starts at 1 30 pretty much if whole events done you can still go out and do something with your night Unfortunately, it would have been awesome to crush the card and then go out and have a superb night. But of course, we did have a, a couple bumps along the road. Nine fight card, we went five and four overall, but it's all about the placements. And the prop side of things didn't do too bad, made out fairly okay. But again, we want to hit these parlays. Why does everyone say, a lot of times they'll say, why do you keep going for these parlays? Why do you keep tweeting out these parlays? A lot of people, they got $20, they got $30. They don't want to go and hit an even money play and maybe win $20. They're out at the bar, they're having a good time, they're with their friends and their family. You're looking for that $100 hit, that $200 hit. Double up your money, triple up your money, you know? But you got to hit the right order. Unfortunately, you got to avoid the apple pie shitter. We talk about it week in and week out. Unfortunately, this card, as was last week's card, a few apple pie shitters. So let's jump right into the action. We got Mark Andre Barrio versus Dolce Lungambula on the undercard. And uh, we're on Barrio here. We're on the over two and a half. Barrio should be able to win a decision. And what we've seen from Mark Andre is that, you know, when he was fighting in TKO in Quebec, he's that big brute guy, comes forward, able to break guys. Super cast iron. Good durability, fairly good cardio, but looks limited with his skill set. Makes it to the UFC, same guy, right? Limited, durable, right? Nobody's finishing Mark Andre Barrio. But his skill set's just lacking something. He shows up in great shape. He has good cardio for the division. I mean, he's a pretty quick guy for the division. He can push that pace on you. But beyond that, it's like it's hard to put him away. And he's got good cardio, so you have to deal with him for 15 minutes. But it's that move that he's made to Sanford MMA, and I think that's a huge difference maker. Now you see him come in in good physical shape as well. Yeah, he had a positive USADA test after the Oscar Pachota fight, but that was kind of the beginning of his momentum. He gets a knockout win in that fight as an underdog. He comes into the, the Abu Azitar fight again as an underdog and uh, pulls off two nice victories there. And then this fight with Dolce is just a continuation of that. So the first round was pretty close and competitive. I personally scored it for Barrio just on the basis of he was coming forward and he was landing the better strikes. Dolce was backing up as he did this entire fight. But in the first round, again, he was backing up, and he did manage the two takedowns. That's where the argument is presented for Dalkawan actually won the first round, is those two takedowns. But I think as MMA judging tries to progress, you've got to do something with the takedown. Either top control, right, if there's no ground strikes, at least hold the guy and have some control, some positional time. Or land some ground and pound, or try a submission attempt. But to just simply take a guy down, hold him down for all of 10, maybe 15 seconds, not land a single strike, and then they explode and get back up to their feet, in close rounds, that'll edge it to you. This was a close round. Maybe that edges it for him. I just thought Barrio did the better work. And you can see at the end of the first round, Dolce, as he tends to do, is kind of slowing down. He's kind of tiring. And in the second round, again, th- this fight actually played out perfect from a handicap standpoint. And a lot of, I know a lot of people were on Marc-Andre Barrio, but it played out perfectly because both guys did exactly what they always do, right? Dolce comes out, decent first round. He has some wrestling. And then with all that muscle mass, he's going to tire down. He has no punch output. And that's what happened here. Barrio, meanwhile, he keeps going. He's that little tank engine that just keeps chugging along. And he's going to probably pick up the second and third round. They're both durable. This thing's going on over two and a half. Should go to decision. And Barrio's work rate should win the day. And that's exactly what happens. The one thing that maybe we didn't necessarily foresee is someone with a lesser chin than Marc-Andre Barrio might have folded over. Like, Dolce hit him with some shots. 
And moving forward, I think Dolch is super limited. I don't know what the UFC does with him. If he starches you early, it's an entertaining fight. But beyond that, it's just a slog, right? He takes you down, but there's not really much with it. It's a slower-paced fight, not a ton of output out of him. Don't see a ton of upside out of Dolce, and he's, what, 34, 35 years old now? Barrio, meanwhile, still 31, clearly improving, technically on a three-fight winning streak. They gave him a no contest because of the uh, the positive test over Pachota, but he's got all the momentum in the world going his way. The one issue is he's not defensively sound, and his chin's cast iron right now. He'll be able to get away with this right now, but you can't fight like that long-term. So a solid win for the Canadians, super happy we start things off well. We had him higher up on the parlays, although that was uh, made very null in the next fight. Charles Jourdain, Julian Arosa. Got to go with the Canadian-Canadian connection. Berrio came through us in the first fight. And I'll tell you what the key difference between Marc-Andre Berrio and, and Charles Jourdain is. Both of them start out in the TKO regional scene. Both of them are from Quebec, not Montreal, but the outskirts. Um, training at good gyms, but with limited training partners available to them. Both make the UFC... Both look like there is some promise there, but Barrio goes to Stanford MMA to take his game to the next level, and Charles Jourdain stays in Quebec. And again, that's no knock to his gym in Quebec, but it's very hard to get ready for guys that fight in the UFC when, quite honestly, Julian Arosa, for all the faults that he has, do you have a training partner like him? No, you don't. It'd be very difficult to find training partners like him. And he trains at Extreme Couture in Las Vegas. You know, he's got a ton of these 25, 26, 27-year-old flashy strikers like Charles Jourdain that he can work with in preparation for this. What I got fooled out of this one was Jourdain, Jourdain by knockout. I just didn't think that Julian Rosa had the durability to keep up with him for the full three rounds. Both of them, again, show a lot of... Uh, Jourdain's the durable one, right? He's never been finished. So as far as I'm concerned, he'll take Julian's best shots. This thing will probably play out into the second and the third round. At that point, he's going to connect on something. Another key mistake that I made is that anytime you watch a Charles Jourdain fight, it's a nail-biter. Like, you never really want to have a whole lot of faith or confidence in this guy. His fights are generally close. And then if you go back to his high moments, say the Duho Choi fight, he clearly loses the first round and then rallies back. That last fight against Marcel Rojo, he clearly loses the first round. He's losing the second round pretty bad. And then he comes back in the third, he pulls it off and... Uh, and pulls out the victory. And in my mind, that's kind of how this one would play out, is that he probably would have a sticky first round, maybe a sticky first two rounds. But in the third round, he'd be able to wear out Julian Arosa. Now, we mentioned it on the preview show, Paul and I, that Charles Jourdain has some of the worst takedown defense you've seen. And, and again, this plays out to him training in a small gym in Quebec, because, like, where's the wrestling team? Where are your D1 All-Americans? Where are your guys that wrestle at the Worlds? Where I'll tell you, if you walk into Extreme Couture, there's a plethora of them. And Julian Rosa had a clear wrestling advantage. Problem is, Julian Rosa has questionable ring IQ. So if he doesn't use the wrestling, yeah, I think Charles Jourdain wins this fight. If he does use the wrestling, he could definitely make it a lot easier for him. He just usually doesn't. And in the first round, very close. I know that most people scored it for Julian Rosa. I think you could make it an argument for Charles Jourdain in that first round as well. But let's say it's Julian Arosa. It was very close. It was competitive. Arosa had the more volume. I thought that, I don't know, I just thought that Jourdain landed a couple meaningful strikes in the, in the round. But it's very close. Second round, again, it's very close. Things are going back and forth. I thought that Jourdain started the round well. I thought that Arosa started to pour it on kind of in that, that middle to end frame. And there, the million-dollar shot. This is what we've been waiting on. Boom, left hand. Charles Jourdain folds over Julian Arosa. Uh can't say he's, like, super hurt, like it's more of a flash knockdown, but he's hitting the canvas at this point. So Charles, who actually has a decent ground game from a top position and has hellacious ground and pound, something we did see in the Rojo fight, could follow him to the ground and pounce immediately, but he chooses to back up and, and stand a Rosa back up. That's all well and good. That's fine. But when Arosa stands back up, Charles doesn't pounce again. He kind of takes a step off the gas. And if you take that knockdown out of that round, 
It's a Julian Arosa round. Like, he outworks Charles Roday. There just happened to be a flash knockdown in the mix in which the kid failed to capitalize on. So this thing's 1-1. Doesn't matter. I, again, they're both close rounds. I think you can make an argument for both guys in both rounds. The knockdown probably seals it for Jordan. The volume probably seals it for Arosa in the first. Knockdown for Jordan in the second. We got a 1-1 going into the third. And Julian Arosa exuberates a bunch of ring IQ. He goes for the takedown. I knew I was screwed as soon as he decided to shoot it the first time. Because it's like, with Charles Jordan, you're going to get it. You want it, you're going to get it. And to Jordan's credit, he gets up the first time. And Arosa shows off some more ring IQ by just going back to the takedown. The takedown was money. The takedown was the key to victory. And as soon as he got the second takedown, it's like Charles Renee looks to scramble and he locks up this Darce. Now, d- the Darce, it looked, it looked tight, but Charles Renee ended up on top. So I'm thinking Charles does have a good ground game. He's a guy that is durable. Uh, I know he does work a lot on his jiu-jitsu and his grappling and overall submission defense and submission offense. And nope, that thing was a lot tighter than I think most people thought. Julian's got these long arms, man. That was a slick choke. And for Arosa, if he didn't have uh, durability issues, this guy's like scary got great cardio he punches a bunch of output he's got a very awkward style like sometimes he's moving like dominant cruz kind of herky-jerky in there hands are very low inviting you in but just rips the body rips the head has a good kick game you know moves uh, again he's got a submission game clearly his wrestling geez not too shabby trades with some of the best guys in the world and when he's on he's capable of great feats and he really did show that on saturday when he's off he gets folded up in the first round so moving forward rose is always going to be a tough guy to bet on but if you're getting these plus money tags on him it just seems like why not this is where he shines best and for azure day you know shame me once shame me twice this one's totally on me like i should not have had the faith in him he does usually fight these relatively close and competitive fights and he could have won this, you know. He, if you stuff those takedowns in the third and you win the third, this fight was 1-1 going into the, the third frame. You know, he can pull it out. Unfortunately, the same issues that he always has came up. And whereas we were right on Barrio, Dolce, they fought like they normally do, we were wrong on Jourdain, and he did fight the norm, the way he normally does. And Arosa fights the way he always does, minus he took Jourdain's best shot. So lost the prop on the Jourdain by knockout, which is plus 110. And then we lost some money on the parlay, so not a great second fight. And uh, unfortunately, Canada had to split this one and go one-on-one. Moving on, we got Jack Shore versus Ludovic Shalonian. Shalonian coming in on uh, Shalinian coming in on short notice versus Jack Shore, who, yeah, he starts off right, right off the hop. He's a 3-1 favorite, 4-1 favorite, 5-1 favorite. Public's clearly on him. By the time the fight goes off, he's a 7-1 favorite. And really where you struggle is where does Jack Shore lose his fight? Like, was this, if it stays standing, he's got the better boxing, crisper hands, better hand speed overall. And the fight hits the ground, yeah, he's... Probably got the better grappling, better jiu-jitsu. And the biggest thing is he's going to be the one dictating where this fight takes place because he's got the overall better wrestling, better judo. Uh, if he wants to fight on the ground, it'll be on the ground. If he wants to just stuff the takedowns and keep it standing, he'll do exactly that. He gets the win. We also had the Jack Shore by decision plus 140. So good times there. Um, but I guess if there was one knock is that Shore's undefeated. He's 14-0. Yes, he was supposed to fight Seidner Magomedov. That would have been that step up. But what he showed here against Shalidian was he's not ready for the Saeed Nurmagomedovs of the world just yet, I don't think. Like, again, he's undefeated. He's going to have to lose at some point to reevaluate and go back to the drawing board. But he was a 7-1 to favorite here over a guy that was on short notice. And in the first round, I thought he looked awesome. You know, he gets the takedowns. He's out grappling him. You know, positionally very sound. Shalidian's got nothing to offer. I don't think that Shalidian landed one single strike in the first round. Uh, it was all Jack Shore. But in the second and the third round, either he got complacent or got a little bit tired or, you know, he just opted to not really go to the ground as much and use his boxing instead. And, you know, I'll give Ludovic one thing, man. He was looking to make it a fight. He was coming forward. He was trying, at least trying to land strikes on, like, the first round where he was getting dominated. And, uh, and it goes to decision. That's cool. We had the Jack Shore by decision. But 
Did he look like the ultra prospect that maybe a lot of people consider that he was? No. And was this the easiest opponent, short notice guy, third guy that they offered you this week? Like, you know, tough to get ready. I never even seen no tape on him. He's coming out of the ultimate fighter house. Like, what do you expect? But maybe maybe my expectations were just a little bit higher for sure, especially at that 7-1 to price tag that he ended up going off on. So solid victory. Kid moves forward. It's more ring time. It's more experience. And uh, surely he will learn from this. But he will get tested eventually. And I'm not sure uh, how quick that's going to be. But it might not go his way. Molly McCann versus G. Yun Kim. This one was tough to break down only because you know you got Molly McCann on one hand that's giving up a 10-inch reach advantage to G. Yun Kim. Uh, that just seems insurmountable, right? And And... Molly McCann's kind of the butt end of a lot of MMA jokes, you know, meatball, and people thought she retired after her last fight, and the performances haven't been great, and she's getting taken down, she's been working on her wrestling, using her wrestling in her victories, and then in the defeats, just get clearly outgrappled, like, what level is she at? But there's one thing about her, she's super scrappy, she's durable, she'll come forward and she'll let her hands fly, but I truly did believe that she would need to, in fact, mix in these takedowns, because just like everybody else, a 10-inch reach advantage... It's pretty crazy. Jean Kim's no slouch, you know, but her biggest issue has been her poorest takedown defense. So, again, as far as capping this fight coming in, you know that Molly McCann has the ability to mix it in against lower-level opponents. This looks like an opponent with the lower-level grappling. Molly McCann should be able to work that in. The 10-inch reach advantage is going to be a problem, but it's going to be nullified when she's on her back, right? What's the reach advantage when you're on your back? Nothing. So, first round, Molly McCann... She lets her hands go, man. She's coming forward. She's trying to bully her. She's backing her up. She's letting her hands go. Jian Kim's moving pretty well, but she's not establishing any type of reach. She's throwing hooks. She's not throwing a jab. She's not throwing front kicks down the middle. And she's not really backpedaling all that well. Now, it's tough against Molly McCann because she's perennially coming forward all the time. Hard to stop that, that momentum. But, you know, I, it was a decent enough first round for Kim. And then Molly McCann initiates the grappling, as I thought she would, as I thought would be the natural advantage and the easiest path to victory. And it's like, oh, man, Molly grappling really not all that good. She gets controlled fairly handily by Kim against the cage for the probably like the middle frame of that first. And just Kim's just leaning on her. Molly McCann has like... She's the one that initiated the grappling. She's the one that's having a perceived grappling advantage and, and has nothing doing. And then, like, maybe 30 seconds left, they split. And she bombs Kim with, like, three or four good right hands. I scored the round for Molly McCann on the basis of the striking in the early part w was pretty close. The grappling in the second part was all Kim, but nothing happened out of it. She was just pressing her up against the cage. And then probably the three best strikes were landed in that last 30 seconds for Molly McCann. So I'm trying to be cautiously optimistic because we did end up going with Molly McCann. Um, but, but, but what do you really expect, right? It's a close women's MMA round. In the second round, Molly McCann abandons the wrestling and just starts backing her up. And that's where Kim fights a terrible game plan. Like, she hadn't established that range in the first round. So now in the second, Molly just has no no respect for her. She hasn't, she hasn't no respect for the power, no respect for the distance, no respect to anything that. She largely just marches her down, sometimes with her hands low, baiting her in. And it'd be like a chopping right hand over the top, bam. And, like, Kim just had the inability to back up. Now, it sucked the energy out of Ji and Kim. She was tired. All of a sudden, her legs weren't moving as well. And Molly McCann just, quite frankly, never went away. So, um, good performance for Molly McCann. When she fights that lower to mid-level, she can shine. And it was fight of the night for a reason. It was a great fight, you know. It was a great fight, I don't know. Very entertaining fight, you know. Both girls had moments. There was a lot of striking. There was a lot of heart. There was a lot of aggression. You know, it was, uh, it was thrilling, to say the least. But as far as, like, upside potential goes, Ji and Kim's in serious trouble. Um, if you were making an excuse for her and saying it was her takedown defense that had been costing her to this point, well, takedown defense wasn't the problem here.
wasn't the problem here at all. It was the striking. And now you've got takedown defense problems and striking problems, especially you, you had a 10-inch reach advantage, no ability to establish that. So they're not going to cut her, I don't think, but she's going to remain on, a, on the low end of the roster. And again, I always say styles make fights, so let me see who she's facing next before you'd place a bet on her. But really, do you want to place a bet on her? Like, pro- probably not. And for Molly McCann, at the very least, she will fight for your dollar. This girl is a scrapper. Whether she's winning, whether she's losing, she's always coming forward. She's always trying to finish the fight. And limited as she may be, uh, she's kind of a fan favorite, certainly in Europe, but in the U.S., again, butt end of every joke. But we like watching her fight. We like watching her compete. And in her wins, she almost always scores over 100 significant strikes. In her losses, she's getting neutralized. So depending on who they match her up with, she can either have a fun, exciting fight that will likely go 15 minutes and be a close decision, or she could just get grounded and grinded handedly against some Brazilian. So... Watch out for the matchmaking side of things, but Molly McCann, you know, fun. Patty Pimlet versus Luigi Vendramini. I decided to go for the underdog straight up here, Luigi Vendramini. You know, he's a pretty pretty big 155-pounder. We all, we saw him make his UFC debut against uh, Zaleski Dos Santos at 170. Held his own for, like, the first round, and then the second round, short notice, up a weight class, got tired, understandable. He goes out there, he beats Jessen Iari, you know, big first-round knockout. And then his last time out against uh, Faraz Zayam, not a very good first two rounds, you know, very slow, very tentative. But in the third round, you saw, geez, he's got great grappling. So what I was taking away going in is this is a guy that's fairly durable. Uh, he wasn't showing these big knockout losses, certainly, especially against Patty Pimblett. My God. But he's a big 55er. He's going to have some solid grappling. We know Patty Pimblett's a grappler himself. Pimblett will try to get this fight to the ground. Maybe Benjamini can take his back. Maybe Benjamini will be the f- more physical, strong guy. Keep the fight standing. It seemed like a decent enough dog selection uh, against Patty Pimblett. I don't want to say he's all hype, but he clearly, as you see, the guy can talk one hell of a game. Now, people like somebody who talks one hell of a game. And you can be the most talented guy in the world and be boring. Nobody really cares, right? It's kind of like the Demetrius Johnson effect. People will say, you know, small weight class, but I just don't think he really connected with the fans. And then you got these guys that maybe can't fight but can talk one hell of a game. I'm not saying that Patty Pimblett can't fight. It's that he'll give you that Conor McGregor persona. He'll give you that, I'm the king of this division. Nobody wants to fight me. I'm ready for the title. Where's my title? Blah, 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 blah. And he, as far as the Cage Warriors regional scene goes, shows mixed results. I mean, he does get bullied in there a little bit. He's a former 45er, tough weight cuts, moves up to 55. And again, you do see some of the bigger 55ers, some of the more stronger guys, most notably, I guess, the Soren Beck fight. They can take him down. They can control him. He does have these flashes of brilliance, but he just hasn't quite put it all together quite yet. So, yeah, I went for the underdog shot, and it started off well enough. I mean, Benjamini did get the fight to the ground. Uh, he had a little bit of top patrol, but uh, Paddy Pimblett was just chucking caution to the wind. He had no respect for Benjamini's power, and he just let him know. You know he, was, he fought like he's talked. He'd know he talked one hell of a game. He went out there and fought one hell of a fight. And I, Again, I didn't see him knocking out Luigi Benjamini, especially in the first round, but he let his hands go. He did exactly what he had to do. He was aggressive. He pushed the pressure, and... This is as good as a victory gets. You got to think when Conor McGregor first comes to the UFC, right? And they're giving him the Marcus Brimages of the world. It's all about going out there and getting that knockout. It's all about going out there and having a spectacular performance. Because now they'll give you a few more of that level guys. You go out there, score a few more of those first round, second round knockouts. You talk that great game. That's how you get over quick with the fans. You know, we've seen it been done before and they're looking for that next Conor McGregor. And the cool thing with Patty Pimblett is that he can actually grapple. Connor's kind of kryptonite was he wasn't really a great grappler, and that's what exposed him later on. Patty is a good grappler, but it's the striking that's going to expose this guy. And then you see him go out there and let his hands fly and knock out 
a durable enough guy in Luigi Vendramini. And so, again, shut me up, prove me wrong. Solid victory for Patty Pimblett. Sorry, solid UFC debut. And uh, exciting what they want to do with him. Because when you talk a game like that, they could just rush you along. But as far as the marketing machine goes, like, add to his highlight reel first. Then it'll be easier to sell this Sean O'Malley story, you know. You give, give him a few softies first and then move him along. Because the fans just bite into these, you know, guys with uh, big highlight reels who talk a great game, who are on a win streak, who, you know, have shored up the mistakes in the past and are unbeatable now. They love a good story, so. Football's right around the corner, so get in on the action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. And with the NFL returning, DraftKings is giving customers $200 in free bets instantly when you bet $1 or more on any football game. Listen up, because you don't want to miss this. Head to DraftKings Sportsbook's app now and place a bet of $1 or more on any week one game to receive $200 in free bets instantly. If Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. And for week one, DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at $1 million as a top prize. Nothing adds to the excitement of watching the game quite like having a free shot at a million-dollar top prize. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code DOP to receive $200 in free bets when you place a bet of $1 or more on any football game. And get a free shot at a million-top prize with your first deposit. That's promo code DOP for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Khalil Roundtree versus Modestus Bukaukas. Again, this is going to continue the downward slide for us. So again, on the preview show, Paul and I, again, did speak to the fact that Khalil Roundtree could be this week's Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Like, he does have legitimate skills, and if he comes in in shape and motivated, he can be a serious problem for a lot of people. The issue is that over the last number of fights, he just seems disinterested, and he does have that big first-round power, but outside of the first round, if he doesn't finish in the first round... It tends to fall off. He tends to get very fatigued. His output falls off overall. And he's just not the same fighter. I mean, he's built like a brick shithouse, but when he's not throwing in no combinations and he's just relying on the same technique over and over and it's getting labored and slowed down, he just doesn't show us the best results. Now, another thing that we spoke of was that before his last two fights, he had been in Thailand working at Tiger Muay Thai, and then the pandemic happened, and now you have a shortage of training partners, and what shape are you really in? And he would come to the UFC and... You know, the performances reflected that. I didn't think he looked good at all. This time around, he's back in the United States. He's back at Extreme Couture. And from all accounts, he was in really good shape. He was taking this seriously. And they were getting the best results out of him. So I should have bought into that narrative. Instead, I went with, uh, I'm hoping the same guy that generally shows up, shows up. And Modestus Pascalicus will have the cardio advantage. He'll have the output advantage. And he should be able to take this into the later rounds. But right from the onset in the first round, you could tell just like he was not physically strong enough to move back Khalil Roundtree. And he was hesitant to engage with them because he knew if I throw, this guy's going to counter. So he kept everything pretty, you know, pretty basic. I mean, he looked to avoid Khalil, but Khalil just backed him up and put a beating on him. It was a solid first round. But we expected that out of Khalil because even a bad version of Khalil Roundtree still has a good first round. 
All right, now we need him to slow down in the second round. The problem is Modeskis' leg is by this point already shredded up. And my brother actually texted me to be like, were those dirty, was that a dirty move from Khalil Roundtree? Like he threw the, sec- the same technique half a dozen times and eventually blows out the knee. It's not an illegal move. It is extremely effective. Dirty in the sense, if I head kick this guy and knock him out unconscious, right? he get a 60-day medical suspension. If it's a really bad knockout, 90-day medical suspension. That would be considered hurting a guy, you know, blowing his head off with a head kick or a knee to the face and putting him out of action for 90 days. Whereas you take a guy's knee out like that, you know, it could be he could never come back or he could come back at the very least something in six months. You know, I would think a reasonable situation would be a year. And the worst case situation is you don't come back from this. You know, the doctor tells him he's got shredded ligaments. Uh, I know that John Jones throws it all the time and there's just it does. You can talk to some former opponents that say he blew up my knee apart, but in the fight, you know, they fought through it. In this case, I have seen this before, Peter Graham versus Marcin Rosinski in KSW. Is that one shot, bam, and it just tears it and you fall to the floor? And is that considered a dirty technique? Well, this is a prize fight. I'm fighting for a prize. I'm fighting for my life. As far as sportsmanship goes, you know, you knock out a guy and you go to check on him afterwards. You guys fight a thrilling battle and you go and you shake hands even though there was animosity in the pre-fight buildup. That's the sportsmanship side of things. If you're going to go down that road, probably don't throw that technique. But hey, man, this is a guy's livelihood. And in, in, in Khalil Roundtree's case, he's not been looking all that good his last number of fights. He needs a win. He doesn't need just show money. He needs win money. And he did what he had to do. So I'm not holding nothing against him. In fact, he looked really good in this fight. He looked the best that he has been in a while, even though he slowed down. Um, at the end of the first round, he was just able to keep it in a pace. And maybe that's experience starting to pay dividends. This win will do something for his confidence and Call it dirty or not. I mean, I, I met a guy one time. I don't remember his last name. Corey something. Anyways, and he, he, people always didn't like the guy, you know, always a rat, this and that. And I'd talk to the guy here and there, and he'd be like, oh, this guy wants to, you know, fight. You know, I'll smash him over the head with a rock. But I, I always thought that was weird. Like, just fight him, man. Why are you going to smash him in the head with a rock, right? Anyways, I talked to this one guy. I talked to him one time, and he says to me, you know what? The way I was raised, my father told me, there's no such thing as dirty fighters and clean fighters. There's only winning fighters. And if you want to win the, your fight, he's not a fighter fighter. This kid was just getting bullied. You know, that his father's giving him a speech as a kid. And even later on, I didn't meet him as a fighter. He was like a custodian. Uh, he was just like, there's only winning fighters. No, no clean fighters, no dirty fighters, only winning fighters. At the time, I was like, geez, you know, odd advice. But in the game of life, not odd advice, you know, because he's preparing this kid for it. someone's going to jump you sometime. You know, you fight for your life. It doesn't, you don't have to, you got to kick him in the groin, you got to kick him in the groin. There's no fair fighting on the streets, you know, fighting for your life. In Khalil Roundtree's case, it's an organized sports sporting match, but, you know, this is his livelihood. He's not getting any younger. He's here to win. He needs the win. And this was an extremely effective technique. Can't take anything away from it. It got its results, surely, but I have to feel for Modestus, whose career is definitely getting sidelined as a result. Alex Morono versus David Zavada. Um, yeah, I did not expect this thing to fully play out 15 minutes on the feet just because Zavada, high-level BJJ black belt. With Morono, he is also a BJJ black belt. I think I would stop a little bit short of calling him high-level, but certainly knows what he's doing and is certainly competent enough. As far as the striking goes, Morono's kind of developed a reputation as a striker over the years. He's a greedy guy, get in your face, let his hands go. We do see the, pretty much the same thing from him fight to fight is that he's willing to move up and engage with you. They've given him the likes of Anthony Pettis, he started off well but fell off. And then Donald Cerrone, who he absolutely blew out of the water in the first round. Him at his best, you see some results. Also got a win over Max Payne Griffin in the mix. 
Him and his worst, still not all that bad. He's going to give you a thrilling fight. So Zawada needs to get this fight to the ground because his own striking, not bad, but he's not a striker, right? This thing ended up being a 15-minute striking match. And even though it was entertaining, man, it was... It's I don't want to discredit both guys, right? Fun stuff. But it seemed very low level. Like, Zavada's striking looked vastly improved in the first round. But once he got tired and he got stung a few times, he was reluctant to let his hands go. Morona was routinely landing the better shots, but they were, like, chopping right hands. You know, like, nothing came straight. Like, even the hook, it was mostly just, like, a chop. And it was, it was effective, and it was winning. It was some thrilling stuff, but... It really goes to show you how shot Donald Cerrone is that he got knocked out in one round against this guy because Cerrone, you know, so technical, so precise. If he could still take a punch, he would have just absolutely picked this guy apart. But instead, everything Morona hit him with hurt him. And then the fight with Zavada, Zavada was just a lot fresher than Donald Cerrone. So everything Morona hit him with, you know, stung him, but it wasn't going to knock him out. It wasn't going to topple him over. First round was close. Second and the third round is, is Morona backing him up, having his way, doing doing some good solid work in there. So... Uh, Morono advances. Morono's on a decent little win streak right now, and I'm sure they're going to put him in. This, this is third fight down on a main card, so just before the co-main event, he was getting a little bit of press there. They've allowed him to beat Donald Cerrone. That's definitely got to give him a little bit of name. And uh, he's fought Anthony Pettis to a competitive enough fight. Losing to Pettis is definitely an issue, but still fought a big-name guy. You would think that he's getting a little momentum going, but if you were to talk to a casual fan, they don't know who Alex Morono is. And even if you talk to a hardcore fan, he's got an exciting fight style, but... I don't know how many people factor this guy into, like, the talks. Um, he'll give you a fun fight, but seems limited enough. This was a good performance. He did exactly what he needed to do to get the victory. We're super happy about that. But all in all, still limited stuff, you know. It was a striking battle against a jiu-jitsu guy over the course of 15 minutes, and he had moments as well, so not the greatest stuff going. Tom Aspinall versus Sergey Spivak. This is what gets you in some trouble once in a while, right? Is that I would assume most people are in on Tom Aspinall. What's there not to like? He did have a relatively not great performance against Andre Orlovsky his last time out, but he showed you. He's also got a submission game. He's BJJ Black Belt. He's the head coach in the grappling uh, at Team Cowabomb, which I guess means nothing when we talk about the main event in a minute. But all the same, the guy's got credited um, grappling skills, and he's a professional boxer. He's sparred rounds with Tyson Fury before he brought him into camp. A few times, he's got good striking. And he's one of these guys that he's a uh, new age heavyweight. What I mean by that is, I think my era anyways, you want to be as big as possible. Like, you want to be Brock Lesnar. You want to be Shane Carwin. Uh, Frank Mir went on the record to put on, like, 25 pounds to get to 265 because that was the perceived advantage. Alistair Overeem, eat the horse meat. Get as big as you possibly can. That was the model. And it's not so much the model anymore, right? Stipe ends up winning the title. He weighs in 240 Francis Ngannou, he's a gigantic guy. But what you're seeing is that people are almost favoring Cyril Ghosn and Cyril Ghosn's style of being able to be a lot quicker and a lot lighter on the feet. And that comes from being a lighter heavyweight. Um, what you see with Chris Doukas and Tom Aspinall is that exactly that. They're not these 265 heavyweights. They might come up in that 240 at the highest 250 range, but they're super mobile and they got quick feet. Spivak, meanwhile, he's been putting on mass. He's been getting bigger. And in getting bigger... He's not the most mobile guy going, right? He's kind of flat-footed. He's been relying on getting the fights to the ground and being able to use that ground advantage. But his wrestling's not great. And as far as his striking goes, like, it's... He throws out the jab because he's so long. You got to use that jab, right? Big, tall guy. But he throws it out, and it's almost like a lazy jab. You can counter this thing, and it's slow as well. A good striker would batter him around. And again, this is where I get back to the more you listen to people, the more it might dissuade your, your, your opinion, 
I assume everybody would be on Tom Aspinall, but then just reading a lot of stuff or, you know, listen, talk to a couple buddies, right? You might listen to a podcast or two. Seemed like everybody was on Sergey Spivak. Sergey Spivak's going to tire him out, take him down, beat on him. And that this is MMA. That's certainly a possibility, right? Aspinall looked tired in the Arlovsky fight. If you take him into deep waters and he is tired and you are able to take him down, should be able to do something. But I think uh, largely it was... Uh, just ignoring Tom Aspinall, what he brings to the table. We knew he had the striking. We knew he had the ground game. He pretty much had the advantage everywhere this fight went other than cardio. So what do you got to do? Got to get it done early. And that's what Tom Aspinall did. That elbow was nasty, right? And I just think, again, he's a big guy. He can generate a lot of power. He's throwing tricky techniques. He's not just relying on the same thing over and over. He's got fast hands. Uh, the one issue that we're going to pull from this is that I would like to see him go two, three rounds because when you're capping him in the next fight and the fight after that, it's going to come back up. What if he doesn't get the first round knockout? What if he doesn't finish the dude halfway through the first? What if it's got to go to the second or the third? Yes, he did beat Arlovsky early in the second, but no doubt he was tired in that fight. And when you're not fighting three rounds in that cage, you might be doing it in the gym, but when you're not doing it in the cage, yeah, you, you, haven't, you haven't really felt those waters yet. So they're going to move him along quick because they're talking about him now as an ultra prospect and this suddenly put him right over the top and he just destroyed a top 15 guy inside of a, a round it's all good stuff. I could see them jumping him up. I could see them giving him that big fight. And to be honest, like I, I don't know what the big fight is for him. Him versus Derek Lewis could be fun simply because uh, he's going to have a speed advantage over Lewis, and he's going to beat him with a punch early. And it, he might be able to knock out Derek Lewis in the first round and a half. But Lewis is one of those guys that if you don't put him away, he's going to get you late. And Aspinall seems susceptible to that. That's jumping him up and giving a big fight. You know, Do you give him a Greg Hardy? Seems like a busted prospect at this point, but... Tom Aspinall goes out and knocks Greg Hardy. There's going to be a lot of happy people in the world, right? Do you, do you throw him down that road? There's a lot of things you could do for him. I'd like to see them give him just somebody durable, someone that will probably get a few rounds out of him. I'm not talking like Amar Sin Taibura. Or I'm not talking about the top five, top ten just yet, but just at least give him somebody that will give him a few rounds so that we can see him in that second and third round and see if he's able to pull through and get the job done. Moving on to the main event, Derek Brunson versus Darren Till. Now, if you followed the parlays, things of action, this is probably the biggest gaffe. But the original plan is, let's say Jourdain does win, right? Then Jack Shore, who's our top ticket guy, he's gone through. Marcel Berrios on that second line, he's gone through. If Jourdain would have hit it, then we just hedge out of this main event. You know, it's an easy main event to hedge out with. We got Derek Brunson on plus money. We know that if he does take this fight to the ground, he's probably going to have a lot of success in it. Um, but yeah, when Jordan lost and we've got one single ticket left, it's got Darren Till on it. This is our only chance to even break even on this event. You got to let it ride. Now I spoke on the preview show. I thought it'd be a great live betting opportunity to take Darren Till. And I'm the idiot that jumped on it after round two at plus 240. But yeah, this thing actually played out exactly how I thought <laughs> until the Rooney good joke. Brunson... We knew he had the wrestling advantage. We knew that he pretty much can take down anybody. It doesn't matter how good Darren Till's takedown defense might be. Brunson gets takedowns. In virtually all of his victories, he scores multiple ones. And again, we, we you go back to the Yoel Romero fight where it's an Olympic silver medalist who was not in his mid-40s at this point. He was fresh. And he got taken down almost at will by Brunson, scoring the three takedowns on him. He's an elite-level wrestler. And the reason why he's having this career resurgence right now is he's got away from just bum-rushing guys with these big power strikes, something he did largely through like the mid-part of his career. He's not bum-rushing these dudes anymore. He's just waiting on that takedown, waiting on the takedown. Might bum-rush you to set up the takedown, right? Throw two strikes, get you to throw up a high guard, get you to back up against the cage, 
shoots a takedown. Commentary team made an excellent uh, point of pointing out as well. A lot of guys will get you to the cage and they'll try to grind you right up against the cage and you fight to wall walk all the way back up and, you know, you kind of make it more difficult. Whereas he'll press you against the cage and just immediately turn you, put you down as close to the center of the octagon as he can so that you just don't have the option of working your way back up. But really what this came down for me personally was that Brunson would win the first round. Brunson would likely maybe even win the second round. But this is a five-round fight. And at some point, Derek Brunson doesn't really have five-round cardio. Yeah, he went five rounds to Kevin Holland. What I'm saying is he was gassed out in that fight, but so was Holland. In this spot, he's going to gas out at some point, and Darren Till is going to catch him with that shot. So the first round, he gets the takedown, and he dummies Darren Till in the first. The second round... Till starts off good. He is landing the strikes. His problem is, is that he loves the clinch position. In a lot of his fights, he loves clinching up with opponents, firing up the knee up the middle, and overall, he is a big guy. He almost, like, wears on you. So he would initiate some of these clinches with Brunson, or at the very least, when Brunson would go to initiate the clinch on him, he would accept it. And it just became a problem, dude. He'd fish for this guillotine a little bit. He'd flirt with the guillotine, and he never really kept his distance. So even though he started off well in the second round, he eventually gave up the takedown. And as you saw in the first round, once Darren Till getting taken down, he's not getting back up. So it's another Derek Brunson round. Now you get a plus 240 Darren Till uh, line. There's still three rounds of this fight. He doesn't look overly tired, even though his eyes clearly showing some swelling. But this is his time. And the third round starts off exactly like I believe this thing was going to go. Darren Till looks a lot better. He's landing strikes. It looks like Brunson's almost not desperate in the slightest sense of the imagination. Not even like overly tired, but he's not moving the same as he was before. And instead of trying to go out and chain wrestle a technique, he's just waiting on that one. The problem here is that Till just gets overexcited, I think. Maybe he had a bad read. Maybe he thought that Brunson was a little more tired than he was. Maybe he didn't respect it. Maybe he thought this is my opportunity I'm going to pounce. But what he would do is instead of just throwing a one-two and getting out of dodge, instead of just keeping the punches straight, linear, low, punch to the chest. Don't punch to the head where he'll duck under and shoot the takedown. Punch low and move. Throw the low kick. Don't throw a thigh kick. Throw something low. But just one-two out of the pocket. Hell, use the jab. Jab, move. Jab, move. Let this guy come to you. Let this guy get a little desperate. But what he'd do is he'd get overzealous and he'd end up throwing two or three. And when he would throw a few, he would close that distance and allow Brunson to get a hold of him. And in the third, that's exactly what happens. He gets overzealous on the on the on the on the strikes. He closes the distance. Brunson gets a shot on. Brunson pushes him to the cage. And once you know it, he goes for this goddamn guillotine again. You need to dig unders. You need to drop your base, and you need to get your ass to the cage. Yeah, he's going to try to turn off, turn you around, but he's getting tired, and you're a big boy. <laughs> and if that cage wasn't there, he might have hit a sweep, but boom, Brunson hits the ground. Till looks for the sweep. Brunson bounces off the cage, ends up on top. Um, Till turns. Uh, he's in full amount, so what are you going to do, right? Brunson's going to smash your face in with some heavy ground and pound at this point. Tired or not, this is a terrible position. And you've already seen he couldn't get up the first two rounds, so now that he's in full amount, what's he going to have? Some magic escape? Probably not. And so he gives up his back immediately. And then as he gives up his back, Derek Brunson thinks, I'm going to try a rear naked choke. And as he thinks it, Darren Till just fucking taps out. <laughs> All jokes aside, he tapped fast, man. God damn. Sure, he was tired. Sure, it was a hell of a grip. Sure, he was belly down. It was a bad position. Couldn't say I went tap just as fast. But, I mean, that was, uh, that was a very quick tap out of Darren Till. So... Who knows if it was nerves, if it was mental, if the moment got to him, if he's just not really as good as anybody thought. Again, we went at length to discuss on the preview show that he doesn't ever really throw strikes. He doesn't ever really go out there and 
show these flashy performances. In fact, Paul was dead on this week, wanted no part of Darren Till, went the other side with Derek Brunson, and that was the key move. A lot of people chased that dog money, and you guys were all rewarded. And this was a classic Derek Brunson performance. And in a lot of ways, almost a classic Darren Till performance. Like, he didn't he didn't have the output. He fought a low ring IQ game plan. And I don't know. What can you do? So I, I'm definitely in bad read. I mean, Brunson was the, was the positive money side. Again, if you... I don't know. Did people go with Brunson by knockout? He's not going to knock out Till. Do you go with Brunson by decision, and he's going to grind on this guy for five rounds? I thought if it went five rounds, Till would catch him at some point. So I don't know how many people had the Brunson by submission, but that's chasing props. You don't got to chase props. You just take that Brunson straight up and that plus money. You did more than good. So my parlay's got absolutely blown to pieces. Uh, and then on the prop side of things, we had Dolce versus Barrio over two and a half minus one ten. That hit, and it's immediately negated by Jordan TKO which loses. Then we hit Jack Shore by decision plus 140, so he's in the money. Then we lose a Modestus Bokaukas and a Luigi Vendramini by decision. They're both dead. Now we're down a bit. Morono Zawada fight goes the distance minus 150. That puts us up closer. Aspinall by TKO plus 120. We're good again. And then the Till by TKO not only ruins the last parlay, but pretty much kills you from uh, having a profitable weekend. So is this the results I want to give you guys? Absolutely not. Um, but again, I think everyone realizes it's the fight game. And again, with my style, as a, which I do for a lot for the fans, as opposed to a lot of other people, is the, the smart play on any card is bet one or two fights, right? The smart play on any card is focus on your one or two, but we're full, full, full fight guys. We got action on all the fights, right? And so you might not love the fight, but you put action one way or the other. So anyways, as I always say, we'll get a, to back to the positive results the next week. I'm an optimistic guy. And again, when they're offering PFL and Bellator and UFC, you're always going to have your opportunities. And the great thing with, with parlays in particular is you lose a few here and there, and then you eventually do hit your 10 to 1, your 12 to 1, your 20 to 1. You make that money back, right? So anyways, it's a marathon, certainly not a sprint. This was an exciting card. It was a fun little matinee card. But at the same time, we, uh, we're in the business of going out there and giving the fans winning picks. And this was not exactly that. So disappointed in that regard. Anyways, next week I'll be back in Toronto, so we'll have to do this over the whole Skype thing. Uh, hopefully the internet's back up and running. No idea what was going on there. But, uh, yeah, pretty cool to come out to the East, see the guys set up, and Pat's got some huge things in the work. I can't divulge anything right now, but if you guys are a fan of Mayo Media Network, there's giant things to come out of them. And uh, as always, I'm super proud to be affiliated with that brand, as well as massive shout-out to Drafting Sportsbook, having Mark back, and uh, giving us the platform to do our thing, and to the fans, as always, tuning in and checking it out. I know this card wasn't the biggest card going, so I'm not sure how many people are interested in a recap of the event, but if you're here listening to it, especially this far in, you the real shit. Thanks for the support, as always, and I will catch you guys the next time, hopefully with some better results. Take care. Oh, oh, oh. Oh.